You are listening to a Blazing Caribou Studios production. Attacking angry geese are causing quite a stir in a Melbourne park. They're going after passersby, city officials, you name it. Yeah, they even went after one of our own reporters. West Chews Dambillo came back limping from this story. See those geese under the tree right there? They look harmless enough, don't they? Don't believe it. Dennis and Jackie Skelly wanted to relax at a picnic table in Melbourne's Wells Park, but their peace was disturbed. Yeah, they were coming at us. One of them, um, trying to bite one of them trying to bite my ankle. Tracy came here for a lunchtime run. They're terrible. They just come at you. I've had to change my route. They're just aggressive. With a camera in hand, I wanted to see how close I could get to the geese. This is too close. After a few ruthless, cold-blooded nips at my ankles, the geese decided that I had had enough. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Varmints Podcast, where every week we do a whole bunch of research to educate ourselves and you, the listener, on all things that creep, crawl, slither, fly, jump, hop, and swim on this planet, one animal at a time. My name's Paul, and I am not an animal expert. I'm Donna, and I am also not an animal expert. Today, we are talking about geese. We sure are, you silly goose. But first, the news. This is Varman's Headline News with your anchorman, some guy named Paul. Thank you, Matthew. Visitors to Belle Isle in Detroit likely are well aware that there are plenty of Canada geese at the island park. Unfortunately, with that many geese comes a lot of poop. <laughs> the Department of Natural Resources manages Bell Island as a state park over the years, and they have worked to find solutions to manage goose populations here and at other sites. Historically, geese have been rounded up and relocated in the northern part of the state, which has fewer geese. So that strategy kind of works, and those roundups only control geese for about a month. <laughs> Earlier this year, though, a year-round control option entered the picture. Goodbye Geese is a Detroit-based business, and it offered its services to the park, and they are researching the effectiveness of using border collies to control geese in a uniquely challenging environment like Belle Isle. So how this works is the dogs haze the geese. So what they do is they startle them, and they get them to fly somewhere else. So this scares the geese away from an area, as soon as the geese see the dogs, they normally go to the nearest body of water. The border collies jump in the water and start chasing them in the water. <laughs> That's awesome. It really is. So <laughs> the geese get frustrated and fly away and they look for a safer space. They say, forget this, I'm going somewhere else. That's awesome. According to the Goodbye Geese website, a Cornell University study showed that each site visit from border collie patrols removed geese with a 94% success rate in the first 11 minutes. Wow, that's really cool. But you got to have is. them out there all the time is the problem. But yeah. Still. yeah, well, they, they come out, they come out, and they chase any geese that are away. 
and then they'll come back to see if there's still geese there and they'll chase them away again right. it's like a little service that you you pay for right so their goose control techniques are approved by the usda wildlife service and the u.s fish and wildlife service they are also endorsed by the humane society Aww. there is a website for goodbye geese and it has a really really good video on it that shows you exactly what those dogs do it's really cool yeah that is cool go little doggies go border yeah. collies I mean, it's better than poisoning them or shooting them. Or... Oh, for sure. And you know the dogs are having a great time. Yeah! They look like they're having so much fun. I just think that's their role in life, the Border yep. Collie, is just to have a good time. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I'm incredibly intelligent. Give me something to do. I need a job. <laughs> Yay! Yep. Well, just a reminder, everybody, you need to go to blazingcariboustudios.com for links to our audio and our show notes for today's episode. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at at varminspodcast, all one word, and at varminspodcast at gmail.com for questions, comments, stories, and suggestions. I run a Pinterest board about every animal we talk about, and the link to that is at the bottom of our show notes. If you want some varmints merchandise, Go over to tpublic.com, put varmints into the search engine, and you'll find all sorts of wonderful merchandise with our great logo on it by Imran Javed. And if you like the show, why not tell a friend about us and introduce them to the podcast? We are everywhere that podcasts have found, and word of mouth is the best way to help us grow. And we want to take this moment to thank our Patreon supporters. If you want to join Christy, Nikki, Christine, and Clay, you can go to patreon.com varmints. Every level you give at gives a little reward, up to and including promoting your thing for 30 seconds. So we will promote your band, your podcast, your bake sale, your Etsy page, whatever you want. We will give you a 30-second advertisement if you support us at a certain level. So go to patreon.com slash varmints and check it out. Now, you silly geese, let's learn about geese. Hey, let's go get educated on some animals. I know you want to. Do it. <laughs> we are talking about geese today. Geese are waterfowl. Waterfowl are birds that are highly adapted for an aquatic existence at the water's surface. They are members of the family Anatidae, which also includes ducks, which we covered on episode 75, so you can go have a listen to that later on. Within this family, there are three genera, Anser, the gray geese, Branta, the black geese, and Chen, the white geese. Together, these three genera contain 17 species of goose. Two of these species are the swan goose and the gray lag goose. There are dozens of breeds of domestic geese that are all descended from these two species. There are also many birds that are called geese, but they are not true geese. Much like ducks, geese are birds that have a rounded body, webbed feet for locomotion in the water, and a large wingspan for flight. Canada geese are the largest species, both in size and in number. Full-grown Canada geese can have a 50 to 73 inch or 127 to 185 centimeter wingspan and weigh an average of nine pounds or about four kilograms. That's a big bird. Yeah. They are native to North America and Northern Europe. Other true geese can be found in the rest of Europe, Asia, and the island of Hawaii. 
and domestic geese can be found on nearly every continent. The word goose comes from Middle English, Old English, Proto-Germanic, from all words that sound like goose, and all those words mean goose. (laughs) The term goose applies only to the female, and that's kind of like when we call cattle cows, we're calling them all by the female term. Right. So males are called ganders, females are called gooses, gooses, (laughs) (laughs) and young birds are called goslings. Yes. The collective noun for a group of geese on the ground is a gaggle. When they are in flight, they are called a skein, a team, or a wedge. And when flying close together, they are called a plump. Aww. A plump of geese. A clump. <laughs> a clump or a plump? A plump with a P. Oh, okay. I thought we would talk a little bit about their V formation that they migrate with. The um, the Canada goose especially is one of the most famous migratory birds. You can see them fly overhead in that V formation while they're migrating. They migrate every year from like the top of Canada to the south of the United States. There's like three or four different flyways that they use and it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. So, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about why it is that they fly in this V formation. So most people say that they do this to save energy, which is right. But it actually turns out that birds who fly in a V are pulling off a feat that's much more complicated and impressive than just saving energy. So picture this. Picture the bird in your mind. Okay, I'm doing as, it. As the bird flaps, okay. a rotating vortex of air rolls off of each of its wingtips. And these vortices mean that the air immediately behind the bird is constantly being pushed down, and that's called a downwash. Okay. And the air behind it and off to its sides gets pushed upwards, which is called an upwash. And there's an image that I'm going to put in the show notes so that you guys will be able to kind of see what we're talking about here. So if another bird flies in either of those upwash zones, it gets free lift. Oh, wow. Can can you see how the air is sort of pushing the bird up and then pushing them down so they're just kind of being held in a pocket of air? Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. It saves energy by mooching off the airflow created by its flock mates. Huh. It represents decades of largely theoretical work. Scientists calculated how the air should flow around a flying bird based on what we know about planes, but almost no one had taken any actual measurements. (laughs) The scientists called Henri Weimerskirch, I think that's how to pronounce it, changed that in 2001 when he fitted pelicans with heart rate monitors. And he found that birds at the back of the V had slower heart rates than in the front and flapped less often. So that's huh. sort of interesting. So is the bird at the front of the V in the very, very front, is he doing the hardest work? Sounds, sounds like the birds in the front are kind of doing most of the work. Yeah. And they're still really studying all of this. But you remember that birds change places while they're flying, right? That was going to be my next question. Yeah. If they rotate. Mm-hmm. So it's, as each bird flaps its wings, the trail of upwash that's left behind by its wingtips also moves up and down. So the birds behind can somehow sense this and adjust their own flapping to keep their own wings within the moving zone of free lift. That is so cool. And then they trace the same path that the bird in front traced through the air. So they kind of, they're kind of mimicking each other, and by doing that, they're keeping this sort of cushion of free, floaty air 
alive, right? That is so cool. Yeah, they're tracking the air throughout their whole flap cycle. And yeah. uh, they can change their places really quickly. And uh, it seems to seems to work really well. So well, how do they manage it? Nobody really knows. Nobody <laughs> the, knows, yeah. The easy, easiest answer is they're just watching the bird in front and they're beating their wings accordingly. Um, but they might be using their wing feathers to sense the airflow around them. And maybe they're just relying on positive feedback. Like they're flying around, they hit a spot that feels right, and they think, ah, if I flap like this, it's a little easier. Right. And uh, how does the yeah. how does the goose all the way in the front communicate to his little little goose mates that his shift is over and he needs to go in the back for a while? I, I don't. There's no mention of it in anything I was reading about, but uh, I assume that they just they have some little way to communicate. So that is so cool. I mean, he probably just says, "I'm done," and moves back one, and you know, somebody moves to the front. So <laughs> maybe I'm not an animal expert, but maybe they can sense the change in the in the little the little air things yeah and maybe they, they can yeah. tell that he's wearing out and they and ah, who knows yeah who knows that's so they cool do though frequent stops it's not like they go from this you know southern california to the top of canada in one go they they land frequently to poop on your neighborhood and eat things and then they take off again so okay so it's like me and my wife on a road trip yeah mm-hmm. cool yeah do you stop to poop on people's things and <laughs> oh yeah several times during a trip <laughs> <laughs> ah pretty cool but uh Very cool. yeah really neat that's how they can migrate so far the buddy system the the birdie buddy it. system birdie buddy system yeah. i love it <laughs> so i was having a hard time finding things that differentiated geese from ducks because they're quite a bit alike mm -hmm. and i found something it's really cool cool High-quality prehistoric bird fossils are really tough to come by because birds have really thin, hollow bones and they have feathers and that stuff doesn't fossilize so well. Right. But during the Mesozoic era, there are fossils of birds that have teeth in both jaws. Like actual teeth. So teeth, your teeth, your cat's teeth, a crocodile's teeth, all teeth are basically exposed bone. They're specialized bone structures that are coated with a layer of enamel, and that protects and hardens the teeth. Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the line, birds lost the ability to produce enamel, so they lost their teeth. And instead, they developed all sorts of specialized beaks that are suited to their various diets and habitats and everything else. So geese have a beak that looks, like, that looks to us like it has teeth in it. Wow. These teeth-like serrations are called tomia. They aren't covered with enamel, they don't have a pulp chamber, so they're not true teeth, but they're made from the same material as the beak. And when the top and the bottom bills rub together, it keeps these little tomia very, very sharp. So they're more like small, sharp fingernails than actual teeth. Tomia slope towards the inside of the mouth, kind of like snake's teeth, and that helps them draw food in toward the stomach. So geese eat a whole lot of grass. So several rows of these tomia are ideal for cutting through all that grass and then drawing it into the digestive tract quickly. And ducks eat a lot of different kinds of grasses. So you've heard the term uh, as quick as poop through a goose or something like that? No. <laughs> okay. Like poop through a goose. 
So when a goose eats grass, the time it takes for that grass to become poop is 30 minutes. Wow, they've got to be eating all the time then, yeah. They're eating all the time, so yep. those tomia come in really, really handy. Yeah, sounds like. The tomia also allow the goose to get a grip on slippery things like snails and small fish, with which they also occasionally eat. Geese have these tomia on both bills and on their very large tongue. Their mouths are full of tomia. So if you have never seen a picture of a goose with its mouth open, you can go to our show notes, blazingcariboustudios.com slash geese, and prepare to be amazed and somewhat terrified. <laughs> a goose with its mouth open is quite a sight. That's wacky. That is wacky. <laughs> it is. Crazy. Disclaimer time! The Varmint's podcast knows it's not fair to compare animal intelligence to human intelligence. But then, Don and Paul only have the yardstick of themselves, so they're going to do it anyway. So, on a dumb, arbitrary scale of 1 to 10, did you give, uh, what did you give geese? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Four or five. That's, I'm thinking they're like dogs, maybe, because people have domesticated them, and the, there's geese that live in, in cities and more urban areas that kind of have to figure things out. Yeah. It's probably one of those deals where the wild ones are maybe not as smart as the ones that are domestic and living around people. Right. I don't know. I gave them like a five, too. Sure, why not? Why not? <laughs> like... Whatever. It five. is an arbitrary scale, so, you know, I've it's been around a lot scale. of geese because we have the Canada goose here in Colorado. They come through here and they, they live here during the summer and okay. uh, they start leaving in the fall. And uh, so I've, I've had a lot of encounters with them and I feel like they're like my initial my initial brain rating is like, oh, they're a three, you know, because <laughs> they're just goofy as I'll get out. But I know that that can't be true because of what we know about their behavior so four or five probably yeah are have your encounters been mostly good i hope yeah i mean i've never had any attack me or anything they they just run away but they're they're just very easily spooked i guess so maybe that seems like they're being dumb but they're actually being smart because being easily spooked helps you survive so i don't know yep <laughs> absolutely yeah they sure do poop a lot though <laughs> oh man all the time oh my gosh all right, well, we are going to talk about geese and pop culture. There's not many. And a few other things, but we're going to do that right after this. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish, fish nerds. nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. <laughs> it's a podcast. Just for the hell of it! <laughs> Fried in a basket or broiled in a pan. It's a podcast. It's a podcast. Hi, I'm Justine, the big gamouche. And I'm Santiago, the the other gamouche. And we're the hosts of Weird With You, a quirky podcast where every Wednesday we discuss a weird topic of conversation for your amusement. Like that time we talked about our unconventional celebrity crushes. Or when we ranted about working in retail hell. There was also some mention of plastic pants, snakes on planes, folklore, and something about beaver anal glands. 
And every so often, our old pal Chris Walken drops by to answer your questions. Never underestimate the power of a pocket square. (laughs) It'll hypnotize you. Join us every week for new episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and other podcatchers. And follow us on Twitter at weird underscore with you. Shadow for you. (laughs) I love those guys. Those guys are so funny. Hey there, everyone. Paul and Donna are a couple of nerds just like you. And they don't get to see animals up close and in person very often. So let's talk about where we all see them most of the time. On movies, TV, comic books, toys and video games. I was so surprised that there were not more geese in cartoons and video games and comic books and all that stuff. Yeah. So both of our pop culture picks this week are literature. And I chose Aesop's Fables. With the possible exception of the New Testament or the Bible, no works written in Greek are more widespread and better known than Aesop's Fables. So for at least 2,500 years, they have been teaching people of all ages and every social status lessons on how to choose correct actions and the likely consequences of choosing incorrect actions. These fables are often disregarded by philosophers, and because they are regarded as having been written for children and slaves, they are often not taken very seriously as a source of information about practical ethics. But they're still around today, and they teach good lessons. So who was Aesop? The ancient Greeks believed that there had once been a slave called Aesop, who was the originator of the fable, and it became traditional to attribute all fables to him, just as Americans tend to attribute any clever remark to Mark Twain. (laughs) The difference between Mark Twain and Aesop, do you know what the difference is? Uh, that Aesop was not a real person. Yes, we know for a fact that Mark Twain actually existed. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Aesop allegedly lived during the 6th century BCE, hundreds of years before the Greeks who were writing down his fables were even born. There's no evidence that any such person ever really lived, yeah. Exactly. Right. Most of Aesop's fables involve animals in some way, and it's important to keep in mind that animals were much more important as a part of the life of ancient Greeks than they are for most people in the Western world today. So as they are for many of us today, animals were sources of food and clothing and companionship for the Greeks. However, for the Greeks, they were, in addition, forms of transportation and conveyance, entertainment and prestige. They were valued as hunting animals. They were used in war. They were sources of divine protection. It was an important part of their everyday life. So since animals were so deeply involved with their day-to-day physical life, it makes sense that the Greeks could incorporate them into their intellectual life as well. I think we talked in a previous episode that fictional animals can convey lessons and messages to us far more effectively than another human can, and so the ancient Greeks, they knew this. One of the hundreds of fables attributed to Aesop is called The Goose That Laid the Golden Egg, and it's very short and it goes like this. A man had a goose that laid a golden egg for him each and every day. The man was not satisfied with this daily profit, and instead he foolishly grasped for more. Expecting to find a treasure inside, the man slaughtered the goose. When he found that the goose did not have a treasure inside her after all, he remarked to himself, 
while chasing after hopes of a treasure, I lost the prophet I held in my hands. So there's the moral of the story that we have the uh, the stereotypical example of foolishness. Uh, this guy is someone who had a good situation, but he didn't really appreciate it. And in trying to get still more of what he had, he loses everything. Yes. Aesop's fables are in the public domain. You can read them anywhere on the internet. I recommend that you go to the Library of Congress because they have a list of Aesop's fables. Not all of them because there are hundreds of them, but they have a ton of them. And they're very, very nicely illustrated. You can print them out. You can use them for your homeschool. You can do whatever you want to with them. And we will have a link to that in the show notes. Right. Well, funny, I'm going to talk about another fictional person with stuff that's mostly aimed at children. <laughs> Any guess who that might be? Oh, Mother Goose. Well, Mother Goose, exactly. The figure of Mother Goose is the imaginary author of a collection of French fairy tales and later of English nursery rhymes. Um, as a character, she appears in a song, the first stanza of which often functions now as a nursery rhyme. This, however, was dependent on a Christmas pantomime, a successor of which is still performed in the United Kingdom. The term's appearance in English dates back to the early 18th century when a man called Charles Perrault's fairy tale collection which is in French, and I'm not going to pronounce it right, so <laughs> pardon me. Pardon my, my wrongly speakings. It's Contes de ma mère de la... Nailed it. Whatever, whatever. I don't know. I can't <laughs> pronounce it. Anyway, it's transferred, it was translated into English as Tales of My Mother Goose. Later, a compilation of English nursery rhymes titled Mother Goose's Melody or Sonnets for the Cradle helped perpetuate the name both in Britain and in the United States. So her name was Mother Goose was identified with English collections of stories and nursery rhymes popularized in the 17th century. English readers would already have been familiar with Mother Hubbard, who is a stock figure. Um, when Edmund Spencer published the satire Mother Hubbard's Tale in 1590, as well as with similar fairy tales told by Mother Bunch, which is the pseudonym for Madame D'Alnoy in the 1690s. An early mention appears in an aside in a versified French chronicle of weekly events, Jean Loret's La Muse Historique. I don't know, can't all this French <laughs> stuff, man. Wish I could pronounce it. Collected in 1650, and his remark, which is a bunch of stuff in French, is that it is like a mother goose story, so it shows that the term was already understood. Additional 17th century Mother Goose references appear in French literature from the 1620s and 30s. And in the 20th century, Catherine Eloise Thomas theorized that the image and the name Mother Goose might be based upon ancient legends of the wife of King Robert II of France, huh. who was known as Bertha the Spinner, uh, or Goose-Footed Bertha. She's often Ooh. described as spinning incredible tales that enraptured children. Oh, Mother Goose sounds nicer. <laughs> Other scholars have pointed out that Charlemagne's mother, Bertrada of Leon, came to be known as the Goosefoot Queen, and there are even sources that trace Mother Goose's origin back to the biblical Queen of Sheba. But despite evidence to the contrary, it has been claimed in America that the original Mother Goose was the Bostonian wife of Isaac Goose, either named Elizabeth Foster Goose or Mary Goose, <laughs> Alternatively, 
Mother Goose lived in Boston in the 1660s, reportedly as the second wife of Isaac Goose, who blah, 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 blah. That seems to be where the story of the children in a shoe story comes from. I don't know. But okay. uh, anyway, this is not true. These people are all too late. This The term is much, <laughs> much earlier than the people are saying that it's a 1600s America thing, late 1600s America thing. So that is apparently not correct. It is generally accepted that the term does not refer to any particular person. So Charles Perrault, one of the initiators of the literary fairy tale genre, published a collection of such tales in 1695, which is this big long French thing that I cannot pronounce, under the name of his son, which be, which became better name under its subtitle, Tales of Mother Goose. His publication marks the first authenticated starting point for Mother Goose stories. In 1729, an English translation appeared of Perrault's collection, Robert Samber's Histories of Tales of Past Times Told by Mother Goose, which introduced Sleeping Beauty, Little Red Riding Hood, Puss in Boots, Cinderella, and other Perrault tales to English-speaking audiences. The first public appearance of Mother Goose stories in the Americas was in Worcester, Massachusetts, where printer Isaiah Thomas reprinted Samber's volume under the name, um, or under the same title in 1786. And then there's all sorts of stuff that sort of derives from all of this, uh, where there are fairy tale characters, Sleeping Beauty and Tom Thumb, that star in a ballet, and all sorts of stuff that happens. So, wow, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of Disney movies that are Mother Goose tales. Yes. That's, wow. Cool. Yes. And there are several old books that have been scanned into Project Gutenberg, and you can go and look at them there for free. They've scanned them in, all the original illustrations. Mostly, I think what they have there is uh, from the 1800s. They may have an older copy. But pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. And as always, if there's like a really obvious pop culture reference that we missed, please do tell us, varmintspodcast at gmail.com. We couldn't find anything this week other than those two things, but they're both, I mean, really cool things. No, they're really cool things. It's just, yeah, couldn't find. We've, we've done our Googling and we couldn't find anything. <laughs> but I did think that was really cool, that, but we had both... Both children's tales and both fictional people, and they both have to do with geese. So. And they're both old. Yeah. Oh, it's really weird. Very cool. Mm -hmm. What's the matter with you? Aren't you hungry? Aren't you going to eat that? <laughs> Come on, eat. All right. <laughs> uh, are, are geese in the food box? Yeah, sure. I think so. I've never had one, but sure. I don't think I've had goose either, but I guess people do do eat geese. People ate geese for hundreds of years, and, uh, and I don't think they were eating chickens. I think chickens is like a more recent uh, adoption by Europeans. I'd have to double check that because I don't know for sure, but I remember sure. reading somewhere that chickens are really recent and geese were the, the fowl of choice for hundreds of years in Europe. So, huh. all right. I don't know about... And then there's the rest of the world, which they probably eat them as well, so I don't know. Could be, yeah. You know where I draw the line? Hmm. Foie gras. Oh, yeah, no, you don't want to do that. That's yeah, okay. that's not in the food box. I well, remember... You should explain to the listeners what 
that is so that they kind of know. Sure. So about 20 years ago, in the little place I used to live in, it was kind of a little ritual on the weekend to stay up and watch Iron Chef uh, on the Food Network. And it was the old Japanese overdubbed in English Iron Chef. It was a lot of fun. Right. And a lot of those chefs used foie gras in their recipes. And they used it so much that I didn't know what foie gras is. So I went to the internet and I looked it up and who oh boy, it's not good. Yeah. Genuine foie gras is made by basically putting a feeding tube down a goose's throat and stuffing it so full of food that the liver gets really, really fatty. And then you slaughter the goose and you take the liver out and you, I think they soak it in cognac and uh, that's foie gras. It's it's the result of an overfed by force goose. Yep. There apparently is cruelty-free foie gras, but I'm skeptical. Right. And after I read that, if the, if a chef on Iron Chef used foie gras, I rooted against him. I did not want him to win. <laughs> and sometimes, yep. and sometimes they were both using foie gras. In which case, I just turned the channel. I wouldn't watch it, right? Because it's really, really horrible. Uh, you know, real foie gras, and I don't think it's even legal to sell here in the United States. I think it's not allowed. Hmm. Which, yeah, as it as sense. it should be. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. But uh, as far as Whatever other way you can eat geese, I've never even had it on the menu anywhere. Not even somewhere that serves duck. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I think you're right. Now that yeah. I'm thinking of it, I don't think I've ever had a, an opportunity to eat a goose. Nope. I don't know anybody that hunts them. So, yeah. No, nope. nope. I don't know. I only know about the Christmas song about the goose getting fat. Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, maybe one day we will both eat fattened goose. Maybe we will. Maybe we will eat geese. Geese. I do not know. <laughs> I can't imagine we'd be eating more than one goose, though. They're pretty big. So, yeah. There you go. There you go. Yes. Well, hello, Paula Donna. Hello. I have a meeting to ask you. Is your brain a repository of useless information like mine is? Well, let's help you win that next trivia night. Or just sound smarter than the rest of the room. With the animal fact of the week. Back to you, amigos. Oh, I want to start, sound smarter than someone today. Please. <laughs> uh. We have to address this, Donna. Hmm. Whenever we mention geese in the Varmint's discussion group on Facebook, what do people always say about them? They're mean. They're mean, they're jerks, they're all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Why do geese behave this way? Well, first of all, They're not mean, they're not jerks, they're just geese. And they can be aggressive. Canada geese in particular, they're really, really adaptable. They're good at finding food and other resources in urban areas, which is where they wind up nesting and raising their young, and they eat there and they live there. They are particularly attracted to mowed lawns around homes, golf courses, parks, and similar areas next to open water. So, of course, there's going to be conflicts between geese and people. Geese also build their nests on the ground in these areas, and they're very, very protective parents, and they don't want anyone or anything messing with their babies. So it's not just humans. They will go after any perceived threat, whether it's a person, another goose, or a a dog, or a cat, or any animal that they don't want around. Right. There's even a YouTube video of a goose going after a silverback gorilla at a zoo, and it's hilarious. 
So it also doesn't help that as they build their nests closer to homes and buildings, they lose their fear of people, especially if people feed them. Again, don't feed wild animals. Right. Baby geese born in these urban environments have low mortality rates due to the relative lack of predators, and then they learn to lose their fear of people rather quickly. Right. Also, there are differences in personality between different geese. So some wild or feral geese may be explorative and aggressive, and those are typically the leaders in a flock, but others might be more calm. What happens with them is that they look at what the other geese are doing, and they, they sometimes copy the behavior of the more bold goose. So they get mean, just because they think that's what they're supposed to do. Geese will also learn to recognize specific people. And this personality is repeatable over the years. So if you are a threat to a wild goose, you will probably be a threat for as long as that goose is alive. Domestic geese by the way, they're kind of like dogs. They're very friendly. They're very calm. They'll follow you around. And and the people that keep them love their domestic geese. It's the feral and the wild geese that are the ones that tend to aggress. So here's a few tips. If a goose attacks, you have to maintain direct eye contact and keep your chest and face pointed at the goose. If the goose acts aggressively, calmly and slowly back away. Act naturally. Don't yell. Swing at it kick at it or act hostile don't wave your arms around that might be really really hard to do yeah it might take a lot of self-control to not do these things but most of all understand that geese in general are not mean they're not mean they're just being geese it may yeah. seem like they want all humans dead but they are simply just aggressive and territorial and they were also here first yes so if you're walking around in a park and a goose is mean well, <laughs> they, they were there first. Indeed. I'm going to tell you something I did not know, and that is that some people who have domestic geese use them to weed weeds, to pull weeds. Sure. Weeding with geese. I, I'm going to read to you a little bit from an article f from the University of Missouri Extension by a guy called Glenn Geiger and another guy called Harold, Harold Billier in the Department of Animal Sciences. This is really awesome. Okay. Weeder geese are used with great success to control and eradicate troublesome grass and certain weeds in a variety of crops and plantings. They eat the grass and young weeds as quickly as they appear, but they do not touch certain cultivated plants. Why do geese eat certain plants with relish while showing no interest whatsoever in the others? Perhaps only a goose knows the answer. Nevertheless, farmers throughout the country take advantage of this unusual characteristic. Geese work continuously from daylight to dark seven days a week, even on bright moonlit nights, nipping off the grass and the weeds promptly as new growth appears. Geese remove grass and weeds next to plants that cannot be removed by hoeing or cultivation. Roots of the cultivated plants are not damaged, as is so often the case with hoeing and machine cultivating. Geese also keep fence rows and irrigation ditches clean and work when the ground is too wet to hoe or cultivate. So proper use of the geese can practically eliminate the need to hoe and pull grass and weeds. Expensive hand labor is replaced. The University of Tennessee Agricultural Experiment Station reports that using geese in cotton fields can save $35 or more per acre. This figure does not take into the account costs of management and salvage value of geese at the end of the season. Similar savings appeared when weeder geese were compared with other weed control treatments. 
So basically clean fields means increased yields and higher quality yields means easier harvesting. So, and they are also on top of that, geese are manure spreaders as well as cultivators. Sure, yeah, they free They continually fertilizer. add fertilizer and organic matter to the soil. Absolutely. Yeah, pretty interesting, huh? But it sounds like people used to use this a lot until the 1970s when they switched over to various kinds of pesticides. But as we're trying to, you know, cut back on our pesticide use for various reasons, um, we're trying to uh, think of some new things to do. So some, this might be something for you if you're a person who is in these industries. They are used in cotton, strawberries, some nurseries, um, corn, orchards, groves, and vineyards. They are used in the in different flower trades for rose fields and iris and gladioli, chrysanthemums, blah, 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 blah. And then lots of little berries and grapes and all sorts of stuff. They, it sounds like they can do a whole bunch of stuff. So if you have something... If you have a big piece of property that needs to be weeded, you should call and see if there's some weeder grease. Weeder grease? Weeder grease. (laughs) You should call and find out if some weeder geese are available. That is so cool. I mean, I don't even know how you would find weeder geese, but I'm sure you could, if you did a little Google search on your area, you would find some. I have no idea even how common it is, but that was pretty cool. I found a picture of them... Uh, weeding a field on a different website so I'll put both links in our show notes so you guys can go and look but they're so cute they're little white geese plucking this little field nom, 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 nom. <laughs> that is great that is great and there, we're, there's still going to be people out there that say geese are jerks geese are mean but you know what they're pretty cool yeah they're they a are. pretty cool little bird they're neat they get a bad rap they do Well, thanks everybody again for listening to the Varmints Podcast. Our show has been brought to you with technical support by Matthew Chomo, bed music by Kevin McLeod. Our logo was created by Imran Javed. Our vocal talent today was Carrie McGinnis, Chris Brayton, Josh Hallmark, Chris Green, Jennifer Chomo, and Stacey and Frosty. Now it's time for the Rugrat Corner. If you have a Rugrat who is eight years of age or younger that wants to be on our podcast, send us a message on Facebook or email us at varmintspodcast at gmail.com for the details. We make it very easy for your Rugrat to hear their voice on the podcast. And today we're going to hear from Sylvia, and i got to give you a little bit of background before we play the clip. Okay. Months and months and months ago, Sylvia asked to be the Rugrat if we ever did an episode about geese. Ah. She got dibs on it. So I talked to Sylvia's mom, Ingrid, about it. First of all, it was really important to Sylvia for us to know that her dad calls her Sylvia Goose after Silly Goose. Ingrid also attached a really cute picture of Sylvia to the email. She's planting goose buffer around the Situate Reservoir in Rhode Island, and she was doing that when she was two years old. Her dad manages the forest around the reservoir, and Ingrid herself used to work for the EPA doing work around water quality. So Sylvia, as a little two-year-old rugrat, she got to help out with that. And she got to learn a little bit about geese, and so her thoughts about geese today are a little bit technical, so that's the little background for that. So here's Sylvia. She has something to say about geese. All right, I'm ready to listen. Hi, my name is Sylvia, and I'm going to talk about geese. And I use, and I know that geese, they poop in the water, <laughs> and... They um make algae 
on the water and the algae hurts the water. So that's why once um when I was two I I planted goose bucks around the watershed um at my dad's work. And it was really fun to stop the geese from going in the water because that's where we get drinking water in Providence. And that's and that's my story, but I also wanted to say some stuff about geese. And um, geese came to Providence and has been staying and building nests. In Providence. And, no, and that's it. <laughs> well, all right. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> I drove through Providence, but I did not notice any of the geese building nests. Next time I go through there, I'll have to take a special peek around and look yep. for the geese. Awesome. Thank you, Sylvia. Thanks, Sylvia. She is a Hall of Fame rug rat. Yeah. She's for the sure. best. Total superstar. Thanks, everybody, again for listening, and until next time... Be nice to animals, even geese. You've been listening to a Blazing Caribou Studios production. Support and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash blazingcariboustudios. This is Varmin's Headline News with your anchorman, some guy named Paul. Thank you, Matthew. Visitors... Visit... Oh, good heavens. <laughs> Wowie kazowie.